Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before this week's interview, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, Angus, for his support and all of my Patreon subscribers. Subscribing is now even easier, with the option of paying a one-off annual fee, which rewards you with a 10% discount over the year. Details of how to join the Supporters Club and gain access to even more content about the world of conductors and conducting are in the show notes attached to this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who has held positions in Brazil, the United Kingdom and her native Italy. She was the Tacky Concordia Fellow from 2015 to 2017, and in 2020 she was appointed the Music Director of the Richmond Symphony in the United States. It's a great pleasure to welcome Valentina Peleggi. Valentina, it's lovely to meet you, see you, speak with you today. How are you? Hi, Mike. Hi, everybody. Well, I'm I'm fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> Good. And you're at home in Florence. Um, we were just chatting before I pressed record. What a lovely place to call home. Yes, I'm in Florence, Italy. And uh, yeah, it's it doesn't look like Florence at, at, at this very moment, but I think it's Florence. Yeah, yeah. It's just missing hordes and hordes of tourists. I mean, they're there every minute of most days of the year, aren't they? Right, that's true. But you know, the other day I I discovered that I'm still in Florence when you know I'm at the fourth floor, and then fi- it's so quiet here because you know we have all these lockdowns, and finally I I heard some trumpet and violin playing, and so wait, what is it? So I opened the windows, and there were people that just playing and and singing in the streets. Said, okay, I'm home. <laughs> so life is returning slowly to some sort of normality. So you were born in Florence. Um, uh, with most conductors, I normally start by looking up their Wikipedia page, and I don't think you have one, which, um, or, which, um, or if you do, it's in Italian. Um, so I was scrabbling around trying to find anything about you, and so far I shall start by asking, you were born in Florence and you played the piano, but could you take us a little bit further on through the journey? How did music <laughs> start, um, and how did it come to become your life? Yeah, so I I started music uh, probably as all the other kids when when I was uh, a kid. But within one of the many things that I was doing, like I don't know, like swimming or playing football or you know, it was just one of the activities. And I started actually playing violin, mm. and then I switched to piano, and then switched back to violin. But um, actually, what really made a difference to me that I really started loving music was when I joined the first time the children chorus mm. here in the in the city of Florence in the Teatro, um, Teatro Comunale. And that was actually also because playing the piano when you're still a kid, it's kind of a lonely instrument, the piano, <laughs> because then you start chamber music when you're a bit, you know, later. But at the beginning, you're on your own. And that's, I was like, ah. Uh, but then, you know, singing the children's choir, I found first the social aspect, you know, being surrounded by the other people that sing with you. And then I remember I was 13 when um, I, for the first time, I, I walked on stage. It was a big stage for our Carmina Burana first rehearsal. Mm. And it was just absolute I was like I don't know I was shaking it was just so marvelous I you know I, I was on stage we rehearsed you know with the piano and I thought I knew the part and then I found you know myself with a 
200 voices behind me of the symphonic covers, and then a, a, you know, a, a carpet of strings and orchestra in front of me. And when they all started, bam, oh, it was like, ah! yeah. that was a, you know, physical impact of the sound that I wasn't prepared of. And then I saw a, a man in front of me waving his stick and smiling, having the best time of his life. And it was Subin <laughs> Meta. It was like, wow. okay, this is cool stuff. And that's how I basically, got into you know just just the sound and that started my passion for music so mm. i i kept you know playing the piano and uh, at the same time i also was curious with other instruments i played a bit of violin and then flute and the clarinet i mean i just wanted i was hungry to you know to to experience these kind of different sounds isn't and, it amazing that very first time if it if it's as momentous as that you know my yeah. daughter who's now 21 uh, she's studying biochemistry and biomedicine, but she sang in in, in Carmina Brana and I was conducting, yeah. you know, and the wide-eyed looks on the kids' faces when it came to there being their turn and to see, you know, uh, an orchestra in front of them and a big chorus. I mean, obviously for some kids, that's that's too frightening and it puts them off. But for others, it is the key to a door which unlocks music That's to them uh, and performing. And, you know, from that day on, you know, she went on to play percussion, sing solo, do all sorts of music making and loves music to this day. It probably, you know, it probably isn't going to be her career, but that whole world is opened up, isn't it? It's so true. It's so true. It is a, it is a very... I don't know. I think when we are kids, we are hungry in these kind of experiences, experiencing things firsthand. Mm. Mm. And this, the experience, this, uh, the power of sound, uh, it's just something really unique. And mm. apart from sound, you, you experience the connection at the same time, right? So music connects and with your, it's just a small part and you sing, but you have the impression that it's important. Everyone mm. is important. And that, that's fantastic. The idea that you are, you are there bringing your own, your own little candle and together you're, you're creating and building up something more, more bigger than you, mm. taking part of something bigger. I think that's, that's really, it's really touching. So your first experience of a conductor was Zubi Mehta. I mean, that's fairly, <laughs> fairly amazing. But go, going forwards on from there, how did music stay in your life? And, and then I'm assuming you went on to various um, music academies or schools of music in Italy and, and yes. studied. Was it still just piano or were you already starting to wave your arms around? Um, I actually started conducting with Piero Bellugi who was a fantastic, fantastic conductor. If, if, um, if you uh, haven't ever heard of him or, you know, just, just have a look. Mm. Piero Bellugi is just fantastic. And uh, he taught me for the first time the, the elegance, the concept of, you know, just making music and with the orchestra with the same approach of a chamber music group. Mm. And that was really fascinating. So, but actually, you know, starting then uh, went into conducting studies here um, in, in Florence and then in Rome at the Conservatory Santa Cecilia. And then of course I did, I mean, I did all I could here in Italy. So I did also um, Academia Chigiana for several years. So it was, a, it was a wonderful experience, but I, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted more and you know, there is a moment where you really need to uh, open up your experiences and your eyes so I I applied for the Royal Academy of Music in London so I, I, I entered got a scholarship so I spent three years there and 
you know, it's always, I find it very, very tricky, the passage between the school and the profession. Mm. It's a very delicate moment. Um, I mean, I think for everyone, for everyone, but um, conducting also is, is very tricky. Also because for, I don't think there is one way to actually enter no. the profession. It's just, you know, you have no. to find your own. You have to kind of, you know, building up one. And for me, it happened because the last, last while I was actually, I, you know, I'm one of these personalities that, you know, I need to do more things. And then, you know, if there is one thing, I just, you know, my brain is just very <laughs> flexible. So for example, I'm, I'm, I have a, I'm graduating in comparative literatures. So I need to, you know, the arts and poetry and, and music, they, they all connect. They are all different, you oh. know, different sides of the same coin, right? Which is art. So at the same time that I was actually um, doing the conservatory, I was at the same time doing the university and then I was a principal conductor and music director of the university chorus in Florence. And then I, I found my own orchestra here in Florence, Ensemble Italiano. And then I was traveling madly uh, at the same time to, you know, to London. So it was yeah. like, come and go, come and go. And uh, at the same time, I found an orchestra also in London. So it was like, okay, we need to take a, you know, a decision. <laughs> So the last, uh, the last semester of my studies in London, there came up this possibility to, um, to actually represent the academy uh, in, a, in an international festival in Brazil mm. um, in conducting. So I was chosen to represent the academy and I was, you know, I was asked, so would you like to go for three weeks in Brazil in the, in the summer? So wait, let me think a moment. <laughs> yeah. I think yes. <laughs> After three years in London, kind of rainy, I think I would go to, to the sunny Brazil. Definitely. And I was, I didn't know anything about the festival. I was, I just was ready for a, for a holiday and the yeah. best holiday of my life. But actually it turned out that it was the turning point of the start of my career. Now you're, what's interesting about this festival is, you're right that most people wouldn't know anything about this festival, but you happen to be speaking to somebody who played at that festival in, in 1986 with the Kent County Youth Orchestra. You're kidding. Yeah, we went on tour to Campos de Jordão uh, and then did uh, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. In 1986, I was 16 years old. And the first place we went, so it's up quite high, isn't it? Um, yes, in the mountains. And, yeah, and there's a concert hall there. You can't believe that this place has this concert hall. Um, and yeah, I remember it. It's all glass and you can see yeah. the forest from the glass. You yeah, can, it's and wonderful. it's an amazing place. And, and we watched another orchestra play Beethoven 9 I think and then we played Elgar 1 the next day um, and yeah absolutely amazing place so I wanted to butt in and say hey I, I've been there and I know it and yeah it's amazing so I can imagine spending three weeks there was you know I mean what a place to be as you said but um, but also a place where everybody's keen to make music it's all about music making isn't it Yes, you basically live surrounded by music and there are so mm. many students from not just from South America, but it's, you know, the, the great thing is that they actually call for uh, other student, international students so that South American uh, students ha can have a feeling of what yes. is around, right? So I think mm. that was the, in, the idea of inviting people from Julia Royal Academy, Amsterdam, you know, these kind of conservatories. Mm. Also because for them it's quite tricky to travel sometimes, so they, they kind of find, found the perfect solution to, you know, open yeah. their years probably yes, yeah bring people in from outside rather than make yeah. travel from brazil it's interesting yes. going back a few more points where you talked about um 
you know, your route, everybody's route being different yeah. to get to the podium. There is no one prescribed route. And yeah. that, you know, that over the course of this podcast has been the thing that every episode brings up is that everybody's route, you know, there may be a few who've gone through the English cathedral system, but after that, there's been a different path. They might have won a competition or they might have become an assistant or something. And that is the whole the whole point, really, of one of the hooks of the podcast is that everybody's journey is different and there is no one way of becoming a conductor. It can happen all, overnight, almost, in some people's cases. And then other people, it takes years and years and years of study and um, masterclasses and all of that sort of stuff. And then suddenly, you know, by word of mouth, it happens. And I think that's so important to get across, isn't it? That, you know, you should never give up that there is no one route that you need to take. It's true. Sometimes it's really uh, disheartening because mm. the the low the low key that is there is no path. It's just there is no path. So sometimes it's really hard. But at the same time, you know, each every day it it could be a possibility. And uh, yeah. I I you know there is a moment where you have to um, try different things and at the same time possibly and 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 until you really found the you know, the little, the little spot that, you know, it allows you to go on. But I think because there is no path, it doesn't mean there is no direction. Mm. This is very, very important. I think yeah. you really have to know where you would like to go, mm. which is not, which is not a, you know, a place. It's not, you know, that orchestra, that country, it's how, mm. at least that's the key for me. It's how, what, you know, whatever I will do, how do I want to do to enable me to really grow? Yeah. And that was the key. And then it's not really important the, 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 the way that you, the, the, the journey that, you know, you will find, you will find it mm. if you know, you know where to look, what to look for. So, I mean, going back to where we were before I butted in, or butted, but, but, butted, butted in about Campos de Jordao, how did that, how, how important was that, that three-week festival? And what was the next thing that happened after Campos de Jordao? Was revealing because uh, um, I didn't even know, but at the end of the three weeks, there was a, a prize, mm. a competition prize, and I won it without even knowing that there was a competition. <laughs> and Possibly the prize, the best, way. <laughs> the best competition ever. Yeah, yes, yeah. no pressure at all. <laughs> so um, the prize was actually to be invited um, to be assistant of the Sao Paulo Symphony in the next season. So I need to say that the artistic director of the festival, the Campos de Jordão, is the same artistic director of the Sao Paulo Symphony. Mm. So, um, and during these uh, weeks, we actually, we students were coached by different conductors, uh, Giancarlo Guerrero, Marin Alsop, and that's how I met Marin Alsop that at the time was, um, music director of the Sao Paulo Symphony. Mm. So um, because the seasons in South America are opposite to us, so basically June, July, it's winter and, uh, and March is actually the new season. So mm. I, I went there uh, in March to be assistant of this huge, fabulous orchestra. I was not I was not expecting such a fantastic orchestra. So the first, the, the inauguration piece um, program was uh, um, a new a new piece, percussion concerto and Mahler five, and they did it in two rehearsals. And I was like, okay, that was really fantastic. So 
there I I did my you know assistant assistant job so I had to cover all the rehearsals and all the programs they had one program per week so it was pretty intense and then I had my little um, educational concerts and you know all, all the you know the assistant was um, meant to do mm. so now that's the interesting thing so i was quite relaxed i did my month it went very well i, I thought okay so i was at the very re last rehearsal sitting in my chair in the auditorium and i was enjoying the, the dress rehearsal okay and then i heard a tap on my shoulder it was the artistic director who said valentina we need to talk that's and that could be really good or really bad yeah. <laughs> yes know, right? yeah, yeah we need to talk is that yeah that can go, go uh, in, 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 that could be anything yeah <laughs> so what happened is that the conductor of the uh, following week had to cancel because of, uh, in, in, of an injury so uh, and i didn't know of course the, the program at all because i was supposed to leave uh, mm. the day after so and and because there were some problems also with the visa and you know it's very complicated and so he offered to for me to jump in mm. and Brilliant. you know i i asked for a, a, an hour and a half just to to you know to make the decision look at the scores and i knew that that moment you know it could go very well or very bad really it was a very tough decision um uh, and then I, I decided to accept, to slightly change the program, and, uh, and it was a huge success. It was really, really, really wonderful. And uh, from then on, then uh, they opened a position, a fixed position. They invited me back in, in the same season, and they opened for the first time the position, the stable position of assistant conductor, and they invited me for the next year just to be there. Yeah, so and that's yeah. how I started. And then from assistant conductor, I moved to resident conductor and then conduct, chief conductor of the symphonic chorus. And then uh, because I was in Sao Paulo, I also um, uh, had contact with the opera. So I became guest music director of the uh, San Pedro Opera. So that, that's how it all started, basically. Well, amazing. Amazing that, you know, this 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 line from this music festival in the mountains through to, I know. to Sao Paulo and also meeting Marin. We'll come back to Marin and Taki Concordia later. Um, I'm assuming around this time, in the other half of the year, that you were back in Europe. And I read that you also assisted Sir John Elliott Gardner, Simeon Bitchkoff, Christian Tielemann and had masterclasses with David Zinman and Daniele Gatti. Now, the first time I ever saw you was in that masterclass with Daniele Gatti, uh, with the <laughs> Concert Cabal. And I've spoken to Roderick Cox and to Yuzhi Rogenia about being in those masterclasses, whether it was the year you did it or later. How did you find that? Um, I asked them about it because, of course, they're live on the internet and we can all watch them. Yeah. It's not edited. It's all live. Yeah. Not edited, yeah. Um, how did you find that? Uh, I mean, also with the Concert Cabal Orchestra, I mean, what an amazing experience it must have been. Yes, I think these are... Um, I much prefer these kind of experiences rather than competition itself, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to say. But, of course, it's a very um, stressful situation and also yeah. very strange because, you know... It's a masterclass, but it's live and with a huge orchestra and with a huge maestro. So it's, you know, it's it's a very delicate balance between mm. the learning and you know that you you really want to learn at the same time you really want to show that you know you're you're good. So mm. it's 
uh, it's very tricky sometimes, but um, I have to say I loved it. Uh, it was a it was a great experience. I was very happy to do it. I actually did it with a, with a lag with a with a boot in, in in my leg because I broke my 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 ankle. So I oh, was like, right. I was doing the stairs, the you know concert about <laughs> stairs with the boot. That was quite impressive. That was you know, my highlight. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, if you take those five names: uh, Elliot Gardner, Bitchkov, Tieleman, Zinman, Gatti. What sort of things do you think you took from them? I mean, could it be technical ideas? Was anybody really get into your head about music, getting your you know music and how to get that across? Oh yeah. I yeah, mean, you know, you I know, mean that's Mike. part of the difficulty about doing about conducting is speaking to so many people and they all have so many different ideas and filtering yeah. out the ones that you think can work for your brain and your musicality. That's isn't true. It? That's true. But the the very um, fascinating thing is that even uh, they all were really different. Mm. They really had very different approaches um, from anything, you know, from how to approach the school, how to approach the orchestra, how to work with the orchestra. But all of them were, obs were obsessed with one thing and that was sound. Mm. That was the key thing for me um, mm. because actually, you know, it's each one is a different personality and, and so, each one has a different concept, but sound is the thing, is mm. the priority. Um, I was, for example, uh, I don't know, it blew up my mind when I, for the first time, I heard uh, Gardiner doing sectionals and he was doing section, you know, for me, sectionals are strings or yes. woodwinds or brass, a brass percussion. So, you know, if you're bold but you know his sectionals were like uh, violas and alto in the chorus mm. i mean that was you know so and he was asking the violas to have to add more consonants and he was asking the the altos to you know have more bow in the in the length of the notes that's mm -hmm. that's mind man it just open opens your mind and I was, I, I didn't know, I didn't, I couldn't even, you know, write these things in my note. I was like, I don't know, with my mouth open, it was like, <gasps> like a fountain of knowledge. That's exactly why all the student conductors, but also not the conductor, all conductors should go to any other rehearsal because it's just so precious. I mean, it's, mm. I mean, mm. that was gold to me. And what you're doing, I mean, the metaphor that's popped into my head, but you're, you're basically you know it's tools for your armory or it's it's weapons for your armory you know as you go through you're going to encounter a time or in a rehearsal when you need your usual phrases of language don't work or your beat beating gestures don't work and you need to take something else from your mind that you've remembered that somebody else said and said oh well, i'll try that um and, and you need to find any way and but so therefore as you said the more people you can watch rehearse yeah all right, you're, you, you're, you're frankly stealing some of their lines. But, you know, the point is if it can help you in your career at some point, somewhere down the line, um, and, and to, if you can have your mind opened like that by another conductor, isn't it amazing? You know, I mean, I was lucky. I sat in thousands of rehearsals over 22 years as a violinist. So, you know, I had my mind opened on a regular basis or shut or sometimes on a regular <laughs> basis. But the point is that, you know, that was my way 
But, you know, if you're not playing in an orchestra, then you have to do what you do, which is go and put yourself in, assist people, watch rehearsals, have masterclasses, you know, and you, you don't get that experience from competitions. That's why I, I totally agree with you there. I mean, the, in competitions, you're on your own. And, you know, nobody's feeding back to you afterwards, only if you've been knocked out and you're lucky to, enough to get feedback, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but isn't it, isn't it important? Let's go on to the next mentor, which I mentioned earlier on, and both the current Tacky Concordia fellow, Chloe Van Sertestead, and Marin Alsop have appeared on the podcast. And so therefore the listener will know that it's a two-year fellowship and Marin basically says, you know, uh, you can come and go as you please and you can do or ask as much as you like, but I'm here for you all the time. How did it work with you? I mean, what did that run at the same time as being in Sao Paulo with Marin? Yeah, I mean, yes. it did. that, oh, right. was, a very, yeah. that yeah. was a very, I would say, unique uh, mm. situation, basically, because um, uh, I, was, I was lucky enough to actually be there in the same place uh, uh, where she was music director. And so I could actually attend all the rehearsal that she was doing. But at the same time, I also took up um, the, the choir, the mm. symphonic choir. So I also was you know, professionally responsible for the choir that was her choir in a way. So our relationship was at the same time, you know, kind of a, you know, I was her fellow, but at the same time, you know, I was the chorus master. Yes. So it was really wonderful, really, really inspiring and, uh, she has been a real inspiration for me and uh, from, you know, on so many levels, uh, on, on a professional level, on, on a conducting level, on a personal level, you know, being a, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it, it's challenging um, to really see yourself from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, all these, all these fabulous um, conductors that I, that I assisted or shadowed, I mean, uh, still, you know, having a, a mentor um, that is a woman, it, it does make a difference. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure it, it, it made me yeah. think, for example, that each, you know, the communication, um, the way we communicate, it has to be even more important rather than, you know, it's just a different, you have to find, each conductor has to find, his or her own way, but especially for women, um, I think it's a very delicate um, topic. Mm. Well, I mentioned it to Marion in, in my chat with her on the podcast that, you know, I saw a video of her talking to uh, one of her fellows or somebody on the Techie Concordia program about use of, even a use of language and the saying that, you know, that word that you use coming out of a, a man's mouth is okay, but coming out of yours, it could mean this, that, or the other. And I'm not sure that's what you mean. So we have to find another word just <laughs> because you're a female, you know, and, and therefore that, as you said, it's a delicate topic, but, but with her, you know, you've got years of her experience of dealing with that and then yeah. dealing with the, the fellows and the people she's mentored. Um, so I, I, I would imagine it's invaluable really. Um, it is. And as rightly, you know, more and more and more and more and more female conductors come into the profession uh, and are getting the work and the titles that they deserve. But to have gone through uh, that process with Marin must be something that you rely on on a daily basis, I would imagine. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
would you say that your experience with the University Choir of Florence and then um, conducting the chorus or the choir in Sao Paulo has helped you in any way at all with opera because you've become the English National Opera Macaris Fellow for a couple of years and then you know, Garsington is on in the, in the diary. How do you think it's impacted on your opera conducting? Well, um, I've been music director of this university choir of Florence for 10 years. Yeah. And uh, of course it's a university choir. So it has nothing in comparison with, you know, I don't know, it's, it's you know, it, nothing comparable to a professional choir like it was uh, Sao Paulo Symphony Choirs. Yeah. Um, but it gave me confidence that um, what was actually a music director job. Mm. And uh, so more than the, you know, the rehearsals and all the organizational things, it's just the vision. Mm. I, had, I had freedom to shape a vision for 10 years. And that was the vision of the University of Florence. It's quite a, you know, quite an artistic city. Yes. And I had freedom to organize festivals and tour and tournees. And so I, I discovered that that I really loved that. Yeah. Uh, as much as as moving my arms and shape a sound, <laughs> yeah. I I love to take care of a group, being responsible of it, and shape in shape a city's uh, artistic group. Yeah. So that was helpful to me in that sense. And that and that will help with opera. Yeah, help with opera because there's there's so many people <laughs> involved in an opera. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And opera has always been part of uh, of my life. Actually, I I also took uh, singing lessons as well. One of the many things I was doing here. <laughs> but uh, yes, I and I and I sang for as much as I played the piano. It's just mm. you know it was very has always been singing has always been an important part of my um, musical journey, I would say. Mm. So um, opera helped me in, uh, in marrying the two areas that I, I loved. One was the symphonic uh, area and one was the, the voices. Mm. So putting them together and adding a dramaturgy and adding even more stuff was like, you know, the, <laughs> the scenes and the costumes and the wigs and the, the lights and the, you know, there's so many layers. Mm. That was actually, that's my dream. I, I thought, you know, okay, this is really something that sums up all my, all my interests and all my passions with the voices being the leading aspects. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm going to move on uh, and say, well, there must, therefore, if you have enjoyed putting people together in groups and representing a city, you must be excited that in summer last year, you were announced as the next music director of the Richmond Symphony Orchestra in Virginia, USA. Um, how much are you looking forward to that? Uh, how many weeks a year are you there? Um and are you looking forward to the other thing that we've discussed on this podcast, which obviously with a, an orchestra in the US, it's not just about turning up, rehearsing, doing concerts and going away. You are a figurehead for the music in that city. And you've also got to speak to sponsors, to donors, to yeah. philanthropists, and go to receptions. Um, how much are you looking forward to all of this, this thing coming up? I love it. That's my dream. I mean, yeah. that's exactly, I mean, music director is... Uh, is someone who takes care from mm. so many point of views. First, the artistic, you, you're, you, you can really shape uh, and help musicians to really find their, their excellence through a longer period of time. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, guest conductor, guest conducting is is fun most of the time. So <laughs> oh, we'll, come, we'll come to guest conducting soon. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's so limited. It's so yeah. limited. You know, you have a couple of days, three days, I mean, a week, if it's something bigger, and that's your off. Yeah. And, you know, how much can you really, you know, make an impact to, you know, uh, but, but being there m- more time and, um, and having the chance to actually create also collaborations to create joining i mean moments where where between organization as well you know it's that's that's really what i'm looking for and i and i already started so uh, richmond symphony was one of the few orchestras in the states that actually they are performing we are performing good good yeah we have never stopped we started in august with uh, with an open air festival, and then from September we launched the season, and uh, we are getting. I was there uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now next uh, in ten days I will go there. I will go back yeah. there. So um, yeah, and we we were supposed to host the Manion competition last year, and then you know we had yeah. to reschedule it, and then so this this May we're hosting the Manion competition uh, in a kind of a different way but so we are we are in business and yeah. i love it and I, I, your, your your smile gave away your answer that the fact that you are you know you, you are loving it or you're looking forward to it and you know when when uh, it may come to the point where you you've had enough of going to after concert drinks receptions and being taken for dinner or taking somebody out for dinner and asking them to donate to the orchestra but i'm I think I would absolutely love to be in that position and to represent a city is the other thing as well. You know, if you, if that city, you take that city to your heart and you want to get the music making and the music enjoying of the city up and more in, in people's lives, I think it's such an important role to do. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe many years down the line you'll have had enough and think oh not another champagne i really don't think so <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out there as a possibility but right, yeah right now i think i could agree with you um, also because you know there's a lot of zoom meetings and zoom galas i really cannot wait for a, a you know a dinners in person so <laughs> absolutely look i did a rehearsal yesterday um with eight players from the cbso and they hadn't seen each other since before Christmas. So, dear listeners, this is yeah. now the 12th of February. I did a rehearsal yesterday. And at the end of the rehearsal, so there were nine of us in the room, one person left fairly quickly, and the uh, all of the rest of us just sat there chatting. You know, the rehearsal had finished. We'd finished early. Normally, as you will, as you can well imagine, a British musician... Would then would have, uh, yeah, the room <laughs> would have been emptied in a minute. No, well, you know, eight of the nine of us sat there just chatting. Uh, and somebody said, I don't want to go home. I'm enjoying talking to people, you know, that I haven't seen for weeks. And, and that's what it's been like, at the, you know, as everybody knows, all around the world. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, to be able to get into a, a, a drinks reception or sit in a restaurant and, yeah, yeah it would be lovely. We, we're so looking for connections mm. in this moment. And, mm. you know, it, it can be playing together, it can be chatting. It's just, you know, it's just moving when it happens. Yes, it, it is moving. Um, you mentioned guesting, uh, and and as somebody who's listened to a few episodes of the podcast, you'll know maybe know that I call it the the hamster wheel of guest conducting, <laughs> where you get on the hamsters get on the wheel and go round and round and round in circles, <laughs> uh, but they love being on the wheel. Um, the problem is getting off sometimes. Um, I mean, as it as it happens, you know, just before 
um, COVID came and the pandemic came, you know, you had a very full diary of guest engagements. Um, and of course, the lion's share of those would have gone, but they'll come back. Um, how much were you enjoying it before lockdown and how much are you looking forward to get, getting back out there and get, getting on the road? Uh, and do you find it stressful, that moment when you put your, that first beat down and have no idea what's going to come back? Um, I, don't, I would not call it stressful, um, mm. but it is always a... It's like when you play chamber music for the first time with other people that yeah. you don't know. It's mm. kind of like, hmm... Mm. It's a mix of curiosity and like my hands start like, you know, like, um, but yes, sweaty palms. Yeah. Yeah. Sweaty. But <laughs> I think it's from the very first moment that you really then put down this bit and you know, you know, the walk, that's the worst part to me. Yes. The walk, you know, from the moment you open the door and you walk on the podium, that's, that's the sweaty palms when mm. it happens. And then from the moment you, go down and you know start the, the first beat there's i mean i don't think no conductor thinks about other things it's just you know and then oh. disappears and then you are there Absolutely. Uh, and everything disappears mm. and this is the first five ten minutes probably is the most delicate moment is when you when you get to know each other's yeah and um, and i i've uh, I, you know, what I really like to do is that because it's such a delicate moment, it's not the moment where you really like conduct, you really, in, you know, I wouldn't say in pose, but just, you know, be strong because there is a, it's essential to find a communication. Mm. It's essential to receive as much to give yes. in those first 10 minutes. So it's, um, but it's all about feelings and, you know, it's like driving on the ice. It's like, okay, you put an accelerator, but then you always be ready to adjust. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to use the, your, your analogy of driving on the ice, uh, what you're saying is at the beginning, you don't put, you put your right foot to the floor straight away. That, <laughs> that could be one of the worst <laughs> things you could ever do. Um, yeah. You're always feathering between accelerating, braking, judging, um, you know, just for those but one of the one of the wonderful things what I actually love in doing this guest conducting is that you know it opens up to you can really know so many different approaches so many different yeah. orchestras and each country is so different it's yeah. just the way to play the the way to approach the playing the concept of playing together the concept of the piece how to manage rehearsals it's very very different and I I think this is really uh, it just priceless it's mm. it's really fantastic i love it and i i developed some really wonderful um connections and and also friendship in this in some some ways with people across the across the the continents that it's it's really nice i mean it's uh, it's lovely So starting in Richmond means that you will have many weeks planned to plan in each season and you'll be learning new repertoire, I would imagine, which means learning new scores. And the question that conducting geeks and music lovers love to love me to ask, which is how do you learn a new score? Do you have a system? Do you sit at the desk? Do you use a piano? And are you a scribbler of notes? Do you use red, blue and black or do you just keep your scores very clean? How do you do it? 
you know, I wish the I wish these uh, these you know people could actually see the video, not only the voice. I mean, I I, I would love to show you some scores. It's just you know a collect I don't know Miro a Miro piece yeah. of art. It's just full <laughs> of colors and it's just I hardly can read it actually. Mm. But you know, um, yeah, I I usually the the very the very first time if I don't know a piece, um, I listen to it. And yeah. I listen many, many versions. Yeah. And that, but this has to be in, in the very, this is the very first step that I do because I want to have a feeling from the listener point of view. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and then I, I, I don't listen anymore to the recordings. I sit on the piano and I just start um, trying to internalize it. Yeah. So getting familiar with it, you know, see the harmonies, see, you know, the, how the instrumentation works. And, and I don't access the recordings until the very last stage. So I use the recordings at the very beginning and then at the very last, just to, because then I'm curious to see all the interpretations and you know the choices that have been made about that. But it's a, I, I enjoy very much the process. And mm. during this process, I used to write a lot on the scores. That's why I have a lot of different scores. And also because the second time or third time that I use it, I mean, my marking, I, I can barely read what is written. So I, I need another score. Mm. Did you find that writing things in made you learn it better? That's my argument yes. for writing things in. Yeah. Um, yes. It helps me internalize I, it. Yeah. I do the same, for example, if I had to study, I don't know, a, a book or something, I always yeah. underline, or that's the way I internalize the information, basically. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for me, it would be, it's, it is invaluable that I make those markings. and, uh, and that, But there has come a point when the scores are so full of rubbish that I, I then buy a new one, normally bigger, because I go from the, you know, a very old <laughs> score to a now full-size conductor score and I take what I want you know so anecdotes or misprints or Boeing's that I've found that I really liked and I'll put that in the new score but then I'll get rid of all of the other guff that I now no longer need because the score's in my in my head better but yeah yeah I mean some of those I've kept some of those original scores because I find them fascinating to look back at them and think well that's how I would have done it then but now something else you know and actually, I'm so I appreciate so much that actually conductors from the past had the same kind of not the same but a similar approach to writing. But then you know there you can access the internet archives of previous conductors. Yeah. I mean, and and these scores are just I don't know treasures. There, mm. I mean, when you really can decipher what is written, yes. <laughs> then then it's just you know opening like a door on you know a complete different universe. It's really 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 interesting. Yeah, I mean, for any podcast listeners who are interested in this, you can go to the New York Philharmonic website and you can go to their library and you can find any score and yeah. you can see what Bernstein wrote in his score. Yeah, uh, he's, I mean, that that Bernstein archive is just phenomenal. Yeah. It's really fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and all free. <laughs> and all free, exactly. And you can, you can also get hold to see, see some, some of Mengelberg's scores uh, yes. especially for the, the Mahler performances where, you know, he was possibly the first person after Mahler with a lot of these Mahler symphonies who ever conducted them and would have had Mahler's thoughts and ideas and traditions and, and input uh, into them. So they're also equally fascinating. Um, yeah. When I was at the Academy, there was a, there was an archive about Babiroli's scores. So that was also really, I mean, I, I love to see, you know, these markings and uh, most of the times, yes, there are some bowings that really are 
key Boeings, I would yeah. say. Yeah. But also some general notes that, you know, it's really so precious. Well, I mean, and to finish off um, seeing other people's scores, I have on occasion because I don't have a, a copy of my own, had to use some of the scores in the CBSO's library. And very rarely on occasion, I've had uh, the chance to use a score that Simon Rattle used a lot. And I can tell you now that there's virtually nothing in there. Uh, you can see there, there might be the, the, the odd word, uh, maybe the odd dynamic, but there is nothing else. It's completely blank. Um, so whenever I saw them, I was like, oh, it's Well, I think it's, <laughs> it's good for the wallet, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because these things aren't cheap. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating subject and, and one I ask every conductor and, and the answers are all subtly different, um, you know, how they approach it. And, and, and again, it's another thing that keeps the podcast interesting, I hope. If you are fascinated by how a score is marked up, I've written an article on the subject, showing my own method and explaining how I go about the process of marking and learning a score. You can see this article, as well as other articles, bonus mini-episodes, interviews and videos, by subscribing from just £5 a month to my Patreon page. If you decide to pay annually, you can even get a 10% discount over the year, and join the discussion all about conductors and conducting at a discounted rate. The details are in the show notes attached to this episode, and it would be great to have more of you subscribing to this ever-growing supporters club. Now then. Back to my chat with Valentina Peleggi and the all-important 10 questions. Valentina, it is 10 questions time and I shall start at the beginning. Where else? What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, the sound of the train. I, I know you would say that I hate it, but it's not true. It actually is very comforting to me because I, I was born in, uh, in the, my first apartment was really next to the train. So yeah. every time I feel, I, I hear the sound of the train, it reminds me, it calms me. And so it's a very, I don't know, strange probably, but I love it. And it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and the sound you hate if it isn't a train? The train, because most of the time it's very annoying. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's a love-hate relationship with the train. Well, that's fine. Yeah, so true. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, the next one, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Three things, making pizza, sharing pizza, and eating pizza. Ah, brilliant answer. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite things ever is pizza. I know. Especially homemade pizza. My wife makes beautiful homemade Well, pizza. that's the only pizza that, you know, yeah. that's the only pizza, you know, otherwise it's not pizza, it's just, you know. Mm -mm. Mm, she keeps telling me, that, you know, she'd love a pizza oven in the garden and I'd nod and go yeah so would I <laughs> I think she's trying to get me to build one but that's never going to happen <laughs> but yeah it would be lovely to have a pizza oven in the garden um, and and how are you with um uh, it was my chance to ask uh, an Italian person this question I don't think I've ever done it before how are you with some of these weird and wonderful toppings that people put on like pineapple and tuna I think they should be banned I think people <laughs> should be fined for eating pineapple on pizza or something like that that, <laughs> oh, brilliant. I love that answer. Mainly because I totally agree with you, but I love that answer. Thank you. <laughs> Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Abado, of course, Kleiber, mm. yes. and Piero Bellugi. 
Yes, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, any reasons why? I mean, Abado and and Kleiber, I suppose, but everybody can understand why. But any reasons? I think the the thing that connects the connect the three of them is uh, is uh, is the approach and and the elegance. Yeah. In the making music. Yes. I think this is very very essential to me. It's um it's one of the you know must. Mm. Um, elegance yes in in the phrasing in the balance in you know yeah yeah well elegant they definitely were so i wonder if any of your favorite current conductors are also equally elegant they are go on <laughs> each one is different yes. <laughs> so of course uh, in top of my list just for personal reasons there is zubi meta yes yeah especially zubi meta in the 90s mm. and then i would say uh even fisher of yes. course, Marinelsa, Bernard Eiting, and Gardiner. Mm. Well, Very it's, different. It's funny, I'm not sure Zubin's been chosen before as a favourite current conductor, but you're, you're right, his beat is so elegant and so clear and so, yeah, it's it's definitely one I've looked at and thought, yeah, I, I could, I would have happily have played for you. Um, and Hytink, <laughs> I never played for Hytink either and wished I had. Um, yeah, brilliant list, brilliant, brilliant list. Brilliant conductors. <laughs> what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, the hardest and the fun. The, what, is it, what is it? Funnest? Funnest? Uh, or fun? The most uh, fun. Yes. Probably. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm really bad in English. I'll get better. <laughs> so, uh, it's better than it's Italian. <laughs> Next one is in Italian. Okay, yeah. good. So, <laughs> I would say it's a, it's a piece by Roxana Panufnik um, mm. and its title is uh, Across the Line of Dreams. It's a piece for two orchestras, two choirs and two conductors. Oh. Okay, this is really cool because um, we premiered and we did this piece um, with Marin Alsop, of course. We did it in Baltimore and in Sao Paulo. And it's really, I mean, the first, it's in three movements. The first two movements we kind of, you know, it's the same uh, pulse, yeah. so it's fine. And then, of course, the third movement happens, and it's, you know, it. There is some reference in the between the two the two groups, but one is conducting in five four, the other is in in twelve eight, twelve eight. It's just, you know, it's it. It's really challenging, especially because there is the chorus. Yes. And, you know, it responds a bit later just because they are far and um, just the nature of it. So it's a, it, it was a very challenging piece. It, it was the first only piece that I conducted with another conductor. It's really fun, but it's mm. terrifying sometimes. Mm. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I've done that once. Uh, we did a piece in Birmingham, which had been premiered in Berlin. Um, and Ed Gardner was the main conductor and I was the second conductor. And it's a piece by Jonathan Harvey called Welt Ethos, which again was for chorus, children's chorus, one orchestra, but they were then, it was told, it was written in the part which conductor to follow. And as second conductor, I didn't have an awful lot to do, but when I did, it was often at completely a different tempo um, <laughs> uh, or, you know, Ed would pass something over to me and then I have to take it up in a different way and whatever else. And um, it, it felt I know, we can always blame the other conductor, right? <laughs> yeah. 
it felt it felt a lot like that um soldiers said that being in war was like sort of 95% boredom followed by five or and um, 5% terror and it was exactly like that you know i was sitting there doing very little and then all of a sudden you're having to subdivide ed beat into seven to try and work out the tempo that you your mathematical relationship and yeah it was fun but yeah very frightening yeah, it was difficult, but I have to say, brilliant piece. I mean, Roxana yeah. is a fabulous uh, a composer, so it was at the same time, you know, a challenge, but a great joy. And yeah. when everything, all the pieces are together, finally gets together, it's really, fun. it's really, it's it's an apotheosis, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how. What percentage of the piece were you conducting in it for? It was. Uh, it's it's the same amount. Oh, so you you, you both. Can, both, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We conducted the same time, basically. Right. Okay. Almost all the piece. Oh yeah. wow! Right. Okay. Oh well, that that's where it differed from the me because I I suppose I probably only conducted about ten percent of the piece. Most of the rest of the time, I was sitting there doing very little. No, that's really. I mean, a normal like chorus and orchestra split yeah. right in half, oh, and wow. it, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Um, well, the funny story about me me only doing 10% was that the, the first time we put the orchestra together with the chorus and two conductors was in the CBSO Centre and it was the night that England were playing a football match in, in a world tournament. I can't remember if it was a World Cup or the European Championships. And, um, and so I had my stand... It was a massive, great big score, and I had my stand you know, sort of angled with my phone on silent, but I had the football on the phone. <laughs> and uh, the principal cello was, kept whispering to me, what's the score, what's the score? Eventually, Ed must have heard that I was watching the football because uh, I had nothing to do for the next 45 minutes. I thought, well, I'll, watch the, I'll put the football on and I'll keep my ears open on the rehearsal. And Ed turned around and said, you're watching the football, Mike? And I said, yeah, I am. Sorry, Ed. And he said, good. <laughs> Good. Keep it on and tell me if we score any goals. Right. Next. Figure B. You know. <laughs> well, you know, you're lucky because score in English could be, it can be both. You know, so you could say, you know, you could have said, I'm looking at the score and everything is actually right. That's the, that's the advantage of, you know, speaking English. <laughs> <laughs> See, your English is better than me. I didn't think of that. Oh. <laughs> Very good. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My watch, uh, mm -hmm. earplugs, especially for the noise or yeah. cancelling noise. And of course, in these days, a pack of masks. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> At least. <laughs> now, are you, are, you a, a, are you a Springs Cogs Wheels type watch or are you an Apple watch, which is hooked up to your phone and everything else? No, I'm, I don't go with digital watches. I just, you know, all, all style watches. That's, Good. That's I'm with you. Yeah, cogs, <laughs> cogs, wheels, and springs are the way forward, as they've been for hundreds of years. Uh, brilliant. Now, number eight. While we're rattling through them, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? It's a big question. How much mm. time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you like. <laughs> no. Um, well, apart from sexism, uh, yes. no. I would say I would say the the competition point of view. Uh, the competition aspect. I think it's just consuming and and devastating. It's just you know it's just bad. Um, I think each one each one of us could be actually not only for conducting, but probably in, in any field. But yeah. <clears throat> each one of us are each one of us is uh, in competition most of the time, always, but with ourselves, not with the others. That's a that's that's really a and sometimes industry pushes 
to the competition point, I mean, aspects, and I think it's just bad. It doesn't mm. add anything. But there is also something that I would like to see more, and it's a connection between, between the, the school and the profession. Mm. Uh, especially because there is no actually as we were mentioning a, a path for real then it's very it's very important that in when 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 you are in the school you actually receive some basic information that then it's essential in the job in the profession that nobody actually teaches you nobody tells mm. and that's from the very first huge issue which is sound because you're you're taught how to move your hands and how to actually drive but you have no clue where to drive what mm. is the destination that you're going so this is probably the, the the first and most important thing but at the same time also something about uh, practical things like what is what what is actually what is the what is the job in itself? What a conductor has to take care of, and what is the difference in being an assistant conductor and a, a main conductor, a chief conductor, a music director? Be aware of the of the theater and all the departments, how it works, how it works in opera house, how it works at theater, you know, and taxes, for example, something really <laughs> banal. It's it's a mm. huge thing, you know, yeah. especially if you travel and there are all these international different rules and it's it's a huge thing. So, I mean, it's um, just pick one. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, just in my own sphere of, you know, what I was taught when I was a student, but also now in being involved in places like the conservatory in Birmingham, and I, I go occasionally to conservatory in Glasgow. That you know, passing these things on, I think, is so important. As when I speak to conducting students, you know, I, I have a little thing at the conservatory in Birmingham where I, I set them a challenge to do with rehearsal orders and to do with programming and, and artistic planning of things. Yeah, things that aren't taught in conducting lessons. You know, they teach you, yeah. as you said, what to do with your left hand, your right wrist, what to do with the beat. They might mention programming, but things like rehearsal orders, that's what you can actually lose work because your rehearsal orders are so bad. Um, uh, and yeah. and whilst, you know, I have no intention of teaching anybody about, you know, VAT and tax um, and all of that sort of stuff. But I do think there should be a class uh, at every conservatory where they are taught things like that. Um, I know that when, for instance, in the conducting world, when you've got, the chance to get somebody so for instance very early on I interviewed Alpesh Chohan who has gone on to have a very successful career but you know he was spotted when he he barely started conducting and came through the CBSO Youth Orchestra studied in Manchester at the Royal Northern College but you know we, the CBSO got him in as an intern basically his job was to mm -hmm. sit there and watch rehearsals and yeah. learn that way and, and then keep having lessons and then gradually drip by drip by drip, give him some more work. He then became assistant for two years uh, and went through that path. And so by getting hold of somebody early with lots of talent, then you could give them a chance. They could find out all of the things you've just talked about, which aren't taught elsewhere. You know, and that, I think that's, it, it would be so nice to be able to do that, not just for conductors, yeah, but also for- true you know, for everybody else. And as for the competitive element, yeah, uh, yeah, everybody sees it that we're all fighting each other, you know, down a dark alleyway over who's going to be the next music director of this or the next principal guest of that. And most of the time we're just too busy 
worrying about ourselves than worried about the you know, the opposition in inverted commas or you know, people that you know we're worried about they getting more work than we are it's just you know you just want to happily create your own world and your own little you know path of of, in, of enjoying music making other people write all this stuff about competitions and and I want to add one more thing. Sorry, I'm getting on my high horse. But more often than not, it, it is the classical music media that when somebody wins a competition, they seem to, you know, put their push to the very top of the tree as being the next whoever, Carlos Gleiber, Simon Rattle, whatever else. And they're in often in their young, you know, in their mid-20s. And comparatively, compared to others, they know nothing. Yes, they might be exciting, but actually they know very little and they've been put there because they've won a competition. But that's when, all right, you've won the competition, but that's when you've got to start learning. You know, that, that's when, you know, all of these things you've just mentioned, they need to start doing. Do you agree? Yeah. <laughs> you do? Good. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Poet, painter. I could be a luthier, but I could be also, um, you know, how do you say when you drive a motorbike and you do the races? Uh, uh, yeah, what is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, because you can. <laughs> a car driver is a Formula One driver. I suppose it's um, uh, your motorcycle Grand Prix driver. Yeah. Okay. That, that, yeah, let's call it that. Words. It is. Yeah. But let's let's call it that. Yeah, I love motorbikes. I have a I have a small green Kawasaki that I adore. So yeah, I so, have this passion. So are we to uh, to sit here and uh, imagine you donning your leathers after this interview and going for a quick uh, <laughs> zoom around the back streets of Florence? I'm going nowhere because there's a lockdown, but <laughs> in my dreams, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, especially in the countryside, that's fantastic. That's where I love it. I don't, yeah. I don't really enjoy the speed much, but I, I really enjoy to do the, you know, when the let me say the curves when you did all the turns oh my god yes. i love the turns the feeling yeah. of being you know in the air i love it so in theory uh on your motorbike out into the country uh find somewhere nice easel canvas and paint out and uh that and, be... and eat pizza wait eat a pizza. second you lost yeah that's it <laughs> well we're coming to number 10 now and you've mentioned pizza twice so if pizza isn't the answer of number 10 i'd be very upset um well i'm intrigued now number 10 is of course if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink did I mention pizza? Did I? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I did. No, so, okay. so it doesn't count pizza. We already mentioned pizza yeah. in the 24 hours. Yeah. But I don't think that, you know, it's, you know, I need more time. We, that, you know, I need more time. I, I need to have parmigiana di melanzane, mm. any kind of pasta. You can usually choose any. Yeah. Tornado salarossini, risotto perfumed with truffles. Prosciutto and watermelon, salad for the countryside, gelato, tiramisu, cafe, mm. of course, espresso. Yes. You mean espresso? It doesn't. Yeah. It does. You know, other kind of a coffee, cafe. It's not coffee. It's I just don't care. A beverage, right? <laughs> but I know it's just. You know, I need more time. You know, we need. We have so many wonderful, delicious food that you know. Food is a philosophy. It's just enjoying life. Mm. So, yeah. Well, it's the one thing I missed and I know my family missed about last summer and will miss about this summer because we won't be going to Italy. Um, and we go there on our holidays and love Italian food. And, you know, 
all of what you've just mentioned has me salivating. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't even mention uh, any of the Italian wines, which I'm sure would you would have accompanied. I know that. Uh, I know that's a big part, but there was, yeah. you know. That would that would be question number eleven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, what a, what a what an incredible way to go out on all of that incredible it Italian food, Valentina. It's been an absolute joy. I've had real fun chatting to you, uh, getting to know you, you, and meeting you. And I hope very soon in the future, when we're out of our lockdowns, we can get together over a slice of pizza, or even <laughs> an espresso, because I'm an espresso drinker, and uh, and say hi to each other. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. A Mike on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Scottish conductor who has guest conducted all over the world and had title positions in both the Netherlands and the UK. He is better known as being one of the most successful composers writing today, with one of his works having had over 500 performances over the last 20 years. But until then, bye-bye.